Church, we are in our last stretch uh, of this season of ordinary time. This is the 17th Sunday after Pentecost. And we find ourselves, as we have during this entire season of ordinary time, on a journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. 17 weeks of walking with Jesus and learning about this kingdom that he announced, that he taught, that he embodied in his life. Our passage for today in Luke 17 begins with this well-known request. You've probably heard it before. It's almost like a demand from the disciples, isn't it? Jesus, increase our faith. Increase our faith. What are the disciples looking for here? We know the disciples like to argue all the time, right, about things like who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Is that, what, is that what's going on here? We could read this as a certain kind of pride on the disciples' part, right? Them just wanting to get ahead, get higher on the list, the guest list for the kingdom kind of behavior. But I don't actually think that's what's happening here. It might be. We don't know. But it, I don't actually think that's what's happening. We know the context right before this passage that Jesus is talking to his disciples about forgiveness, right? In another well-known verse, verse 4, it says, If a person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, what do you do? You must forgive. And literally the next sentence, as far as we know, in the Gospel of Luke is the disciples saying, Lord, increase our faith. Apparently, there is something about this idea of forgiveness that is challenging, right? The idea of forgiveness is a beautiful thing, but the reality of forgiveness is another story. It reminds me of something I once heard from Walter Brueggemann, who is, I think, quoting the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt, who said that in the Christian tradition, the resurrection of Jesus is not the most startling thing. It's not the most radical thing in the Christian tradition. The most startling thing in the Christian tradition is forgiveness. Luke 17 confirms this reality, at least for the disciples. They were basically saying, Lord, if you want us to learn how to forgive others, you've got to do a work in us first, right? Lord, help us. Increase our faith. I think if we step back and look at all of our readings from this morning, from the lectionary, they all, all touch on this topic, not of forgiveness, but of faith from a variety of different angles. Each touches on what it means to increase our faith, like the disciples asked. And so today I'd like to just offer up some observations from our readings this morning about this topic of faith. I want to start in the psalm reading for this morning, and I want to start with what I think is a a perfectly simple definition of faith in Psalm 37. Verse 4, it says, put your trust in the Lord and do good. Put your trust in the Lord and do good. A few verses later, it repeats a similar sentiment. It says, commit your way unto the Lord and put your trust in him. Faith before anything else is about trust, isn't it? Entrusting ourselves to Jesus, placing our trust in him alone. But this is no mere mental activity, right? This isn't just what's going on in our heads, a trust that we have that we think about. This isn't about thinking the right things about Jesus. Faith and trust are embodied actions. We commit ourselves to the doing of good, as Psalm 37 says. 
we commit our way, our path to the Lord. When I was in high school, during a time in my life when my own faith was growing, my family started going to a church in the Milwaukee area led by a, a pastor named Stuart Briscoe, who actually just recently passed away in the last month or so at the age of 91. And it's hard to put it into words for me how much Stuart and his wife Jill, they, they led the church together, they preached um, often. It's hard to put into words how much they meant to me as pastors. They both preached regularly, and their preaching was so formative for me and my faith during my years in high school and college. And I was reflecting on his own life just since he passed recently. I was reflecting on some of the sermons that he preached that were really meaningful to me. One of them, he talks about faith. And he spoke of faith like an airplane. You've probably heard this analogy before. He's probably not the first one to ever say it, but it was really meaningful to me at the time when he preached it. He said that faith is like an airplane. It's one thing to believe that airplanes can fly, right? You can study the science of airplanes and understand Bernoulli's law of aerodynamics and how faster moving air above the wings decreases the air pressure causing the planes to lift. You can know all this intellectually, mentally, and understand it and believe it to be true. But that is not faith. Stewart explained that step, faith is stepping on to an airplane. Sitting in your seats, buckling in and allowing the plane to take off and, and lift you into the sky. This is the kind of faith that I think Psalm 37 is pointing us to. We put our trust in the Lord but it's not merely a cognitive ex exercise, right? The kind of faith Jesus is calling, to a, calling us to is a stepping out onto the plane kind of faith. It's not merely belief that Jesus is the, the Messiah King uh, uh, mentally. Faith in Jesus is embodied faith. We place our trust in Jesus through the way that we actually live our lives. The way we make decisions and live a public life in the world. Are we willing to trust God with our lives, with our finances, our families? Are we willing to do the things like seek forgiveness when deep down inside we'd rather have retribution? In other words, faith is deciding to live our lives as if all that Jesus said and did were actually true. Even when it might sometimes actually be hard to live that way. Just look at our sermon from last week on, on wealth and the poor. Faith involves trust and trusting ourselves to God. This is what we see in our passage from Habakkuk today. In fact, if you read the entirety of Habakkuk, it actually reads as a story about faith. It's a, it's a book that's entirely about faith. Our passage from today finds the prophet wrestling with God about the injustices that he sees before him. We ourselves can relate to this injustice in our own times. Like we talked about last week with the poor that Father Sean spoke of. And the injustices we see all around us to, in, the, in the poor and the marginalized in our own lives, in our own city. Habakkuk wrestled with, with God around this question. He says, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not listen. How long is a lament that has been prayed and sung for millennia for those who are poor and oppressed under the hands of of unjust kings and governments. But notice what happens with the prophet here. 
In the midst of Habakkuk's interaction with God, he commits himself to wait and watch for God to show up. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the ramparts. The prophet, though he has trouble believing based on what he has seen, even so he commits himself and entrusts himself to stand watch and waits for the Lord to bring justice. This is the same faith that we see in Paul's letter to Timothy that we read earlier. Verse 12, it says, For I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard the deposit I have entrusted to him. For Habakkuk and Paul, faith is embodied. It isn't faith if it doesn't involve entrusting ourselves, our lives, to Jesus. The second observation from our text this morning on faith is that faith is costly. Faith is costly. Putting our faith in God and following Jesus in our life is a costly endeavor. It should be. In Habakkuk, faith in God costs us our pride. Verse 4, it says, look at the proud. Their spirit is not right within them, but the righteous live by their faithfulness. Here in chapter 2, God is contrasting the faithfulness of the righteous against the proud. Something is off about the proud in Habakkuk. Something is not right in them. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin and the thing that leads to every other vice. Pride, according to Lewis, is the complete anti-God state of mind. And I think he's right. Whereas this text in Habakkuk is a word for our cultural moment in so many ways. One way I see this is how pride refuses to admit when we are wrong. Our pride is stubborn and refuses to admit wrongdoing. Can you imagine a world where it was just a bit easier or more commonplace to see people admit when they were wrong? We see this in Luke 17 as well, in Jesus' challenging parable about the slave coming in from the fields. It's a passage about, about faith and pride. Just as slaves or servants wouldn't expect to be thanked for their work in first century Israel, so too faith isn't something we should ought to take pride in. Pride has no place in the context of faith. We are slaves unworthy of special praise, Jesus says. To follow Jesus is to lay down our pride in the way that he laid down his. All the way to the humiliating death he experienced on the cross alongside two criminals. This is the heart of the message of humility we see in Luke 17 and also we see in Philippians 2, right? The logic of faith in the kingdom of God is this, that we might have the same mind as Christ Jesus who humbled himself and laid down his very life for the sake of the world. Faith is costly. In this case, it costs us our pride. The third observation I want to make this morning is that faith is communal. Faith is communal. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. Let's not pass over this verse too quickly. I want to know more about the faith of Lois and Eunice, don't you? 
the faith that was passed on to Timothy. How important were they in shaping the life of Timothy that he now has two books of the Bible named after him? Perhaps we should actually rename these two books after Lois and Eunice as the spiritual mothers in Timothy's life. I'm reading a book right now called Abuelita Faith that is all about faith that has been formed not by the Peters and Pauls of our lives, but more by the Loises and the Eunices. Faith is often formed and shaped by those who are often overlooked and unnamed in our lives and in our worlds. But the point that I want to make here is that faith is not an individual or isolating act, right? Following Jesus was never intended to be a solitary endeavor. In a little while, we'll profess our faith in a communal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who promises to come near to us and to commune with us each and every week when we come to the table. And we need the Peters and the Pauls, the Loises and the Eunices in our lives. We need abuelas and madres and families and friends who can help us along in the faith, especially when faith gets costly, when following Jesus gets hard. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is, who are you sharing your faith with? And I don't mean that in an evangelistic way. I mean, who are you letting into your life and your faith as you have it? Who are you allowing to see into your life as you follow Jesus? Does someone know your struggles? Is there someone who can carry your joys and your pains with you? Like the Loises and Eunices of our life, Eunices of our lives. Faith is communal. The fourth observation I want to make this morning about our readings is that faith is hopeful. Faith is hopeful. Almost always in scripture, when we have moments where a psalmist or a prophet asks, where are you, God? Or how long, O Lord? These moments where faith seems hard to come by, we tend to get a word of hope alongside of it, like we do in Habakkuk. Hear God's response to the prophet in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And I'm going to read from Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase here. He says, and then God answered, Write this. Write what you see. Write it out in big block letters so it can be read on the run. This vision message is a witness pointing to what's coming. It aches for the coming. It can hardly wait. And it doesn't lie. If it seems slow in coming, wait. It is on its way. And it will come at the right time. In response to Habakkuk's question about how long for this justice to come in our worlds, God's response is a message of hope. God's justice and peace will surely come. It's on its way. And so we entrust ourselves to a faith that waits in hope for that coming. Like the prophet who who stations himself on the rampart watching for God to come, so we wait in hope. Our psalm echoes this same faith in verse 7. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Rez, I don't know about you, but uh, two things that seem hard to come by in life right now are waiting and waiting with hope. Right? 
It's hard enough just to wait in general. Like, we're wired to, like, be bad at waiting in our world today. Everything is at our fingertips, right? Waiting has become foreign to us. And waiting in hope seems all the more challenging. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or we're just in this unique cultural moment in our world today, but hope is hard to come by these days. But our readings for this morning remind us once again that faith is hopeful because we cling to the promise that God will come quickly. As the old spiritual proclaims, soon and very soon we are going to see the king. Amen? The kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven, and we wait like the prophet did on the rampart, waiting and watching for this kingdom to come. So faith is embodied. Faith is costly. Faith is communal, and faith is hopeful. Which one of these do you need to hear today? As you reflect on your life and your faith and walk with Jesus, which of these four aspects of faith that we get from our readings today feels most pressing to you? Which one of these do you need to learn to lean into this week? Maybe if you're like me, it's all of them. We all need to join in with the disciples, don't we? And ask the Lord to increase our faith. And the good news this morning is that we don't need huge faith in order to accomplish any of this. We don't need, like the disciples are, I think are here are assuming, we don't need huge faith to take a next step in following Jesus. So if you're struggling in your faith right now, take heart. The disciples' request for more faith is met with Jesus' response that even faith the size of a mustard seed can do the impossible. It doesn't require massive amounts of faith to follow Jesus into a life that is embodied, that is costly, that is communal, and that is hopeful. Just the faith the size of a mustard seed and a willingness to take a step forward in following Jesus as we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.